Stay Alive. I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show. Well, the big news this week was Telstra, with its $1.6 billion plus plan to completely revitalise its intercapital fibre links, expanding their capabilities to as much as 55 terabits per second per, pi- per, per fibre pair. Also, it's going to build a ground station and backhaul network covering hundreds of locations for Fiasat. We're going to be talking about that with executive editor Rowan Pierce in just a moment. But first up, Canopus Networks, Dr. Fijay Safariman. We've had him on the show before. This week, they launched a new platform that measures latency and the performance of gaming on the network. It's a very interesting topic because ISPs are looking for ways to differentiate themselves in the marketplace. And increasingly, that's about optimizing experience and not just selling or reselling, in the case of NBN, headline speeds. So I had a chat with Dr. PJ a little earlier this week. Well, the problem it's solving is that network operators do not really understand the frustrations that gamers go through. And gamers are a pretty vocal lot. And uh, as you can imagine, they are the most demanding on the network in the sense that it's not just about bandwidth, it's often about latency. And network operators just don't have that visibility. So when a gamer calls and complains that they're getting a bad, you know, uh, laggy game, um, the ISP really has no means to check or verify or see what is happening. Um, and this causes, you know, bad reviews on Whirlpool. It causes frustration, support calls, um, reputational damage, all that kind of stuff. So that's where Gamescope comes in. What it does is, as you know, Canopus being a network analytics company that's built on AI signatures, which we have developed and patented, we track all the games going on in the network. So it doesn't matter which publisher, doesn't matter which platform. It could be a PC game, could be a Xbox game, could be a PlayStation, could be any platform. We capture all the games that are going through, and we keep track of the top 100 games on the Steam charts, Twitch charts, and so on. And new games, as they come out, we build the signatures and roll them out. And this, using this data tracking of all the games, we actually create a map of where the gaming servers are. Now, you may think that is trivial. It's not, because it changes day to day. Depending on if you play in the morning, you'll have a different set of players you play with. You know, maybe nobody in Australia is playing. Your teammates are in the U.S. or some other geography. So the server might be located somewhere else as compared to you playing at Tika when there are other gamers in Australia who are active and willing to form teams with you. Or you may have friends in a certain geography you want to team up with. So based on all that, the game servers actually move around. And so, and then of course, it depends on the title, uh, who the publisher is, which cloud they have, they're partnered with. It also depends on the popularity of the game. If the game gets really popular, most servers get spun up. So all this dynamicity means it's actually difficult to track the locations of the service and the latency. And we give that full visibility. So that's that's what the product is essentially about. And to complete the story, using this data, literally up to the minute maps and measures of latency, the operator then has a few things they can actually act upon. Firstly, they can say, hey, if a game is really trending and uh, the servers are located in a certain geography, what can I do to improve my routing paths to, that, to those servers? Uh, because my gamers really want to have a good latency. Um, as examples, you know, we have seen routing paths that are a bit bizarre, you know, traffic from here to Asia going through the U.S. and so on. Uh, those things could be optimized by the operator. But equally, they could also assess other tools. As you know, there are gaming CDNs that are emerging, which are starting to embed, you know, um, 
game servers in, into their CDNs. And then there are the game accelerators, which I'm sure you've heard of things like WT Fast, which essentially give you a VPN to improve your gaming experience. Because Canopus is measuring all games in the network, we can even assess if these tools are actually having an impact or not. Because we have enough evidence to show that these um, accelerators, for example, don't are not equally effective on all games. They work for certain games, but not so much for other games. And we can we essentially produce all the quantitative data around this to assess your existing solutions, and also for you as an operator to try these new solutions, such as new routing paths. Probably a bit of a long-winded answer, but hopefully that helped, Graham. No, that's all good. Now, I understand that you, you've already got um, GameScope up and running with yep. some networks in Australia, um, and you've, you've been analysing the data of about 100,000 users or so. Um, what, what's that data telling you right now about how uh, network performance is affecting gaming? Yeah, so the data is telling us that at a macro level, if we track the five most popular games... Um, it's telling us that 70% of the time, the server does get picked in Australia, and the latency is generally under 100 milliseconds. So that's that's the good news uh, side of the story. But then it's also telling us that the remaining 30%, there's actually quite a lot of variability. Um, certain games, um, and as examples, I'll point out Valorant and um, Genshin Impact, uh, their servers seem to be largely Genshin Impact in Japan and Valorant in Hong Kong. And that um, does affect the latency. You know, the latencies tend to be definitely upwards of 100 milliseconds, sometimes even going beyond 200 milliseconds. And interestingly, among the different operators, um, some of them, for the same servers, are actually getting much worse latency than others because that's the nature of their peering relationships that they have. And then also we are noting that there are some uh, instances, somewhat rare, but not that rare, where the latency is actually going to 300 plus milliseconds and the game becomes quite unplayable. And in fact, that is being reflected in abandonment. So we are looking at abandonment rates of games within the first two minutes and it's fourfold when the server is actually overseas compared to when the server is local. So that obviously is having an impact on gaming experience. Gamers are abandoning games, and this is where we feel that the ISP can actually step in and make those games more playable and make gamers more happy. Okay, now, how important is gaming in terms of um, the, the, the mix of, of uses for, for the network um, in the grand scheme of things? Why, why is this important for an ISP to be aware of this? Well, a few reasons. Firstly, if you look at the gaming numbers, uh, we've got some data to show at least 20% of houses are fairly regular gamers, right? They are doing multiplayer online games on a reasonably regular basis. Um, now, gamers, um, firstly, the gaming industry itself, one has to understand, is three times as big as the streaming industry. Like, we keep talking about the streaming wars and, and the load the streaming is putting on the network. The reality is that's a $60 billion industry, whereas gaming was a $180 billion industry last year. So it's actually massive. If you look at the value per bit of a gaming stream, it's a two to three orders magnitude more than a streaming uh, stream, right? So, and secondly, gamers are not so bandwidth sensitive, right? So giving a gamer a, a 200 meg plan as opposed to 100 meg is probably not gonna have that big an impact, but they're extremely latency sensitive and they're vocal. So when they have a bad game experience, they get very frustrated and I, I do have two teenage sons, which is a kind of a serious shooting game. And there have been instances where I've been doing some activity in the house. It has affected his game lag. And 
when that happens, he gets kicked out of the game and he's not allowed to join back in for half an hour because he's essentially affecting the experience for other players. And so he gets ostracized from his friends and he's extremely unhappy. So gamers get frustrated and when they get frustrated, they they you know they complain on on the various forums and that has an impact on the reputation so that that's that's just part of the story and then the second side of the story is gaming is only growing bigger Graham as we know we have seen Microsoft's acquisition of Activision we have seen you know a lot of players getting into gaming and and in fact uh, with the growth of virtual reality and metaverse uh, people are saying essentially gaming is the stepping stone to get into the metaverse so if anything it's only going to get bigger and experience really matters because when you're playing a shooting game or when you're immersed in a virtual world, your actions have to take uh, impact instantly. Otherwise, it's extremely noticeable and users are not happy. So I do believe that gaming is ex- it's very important for a network operator to keep their gamers happy because they are kind of the canaries in the coal mine who will, you know, who will either give you a good reputation or trash you in, in the online forums. Okay. Um, so how are you going to take this to market? What, what are the next steps from here um, to get this out into the, into the world? Uh, look, uh, I think uh, from our side, we are eager to move quick and get this data to be used to optimize the experience. And, um, and essentially, the, I think you know, it's, it's, there's an education process here as well because operators are not as used to uh, maybe uh, absorbing, digesting this data and and knowing what to do with it. So we're going through a bit of an education process. The first step is just understanding what is happening, uh, understanding if the data here is corroborating with the kind of support calls or the reviews that they're getting in the online forums, and using that, then decide what are the right set of steps to take. I mean, it could be optimizing the network to improve the routing paths, but it could also be um, using the right kind of products that could accelerate the gaming experience, being able to validate if those products are having their intended impact. And essentially, um, the longer-term vision is, Graham, that gaming has a lot of value, in fact, much more than streaming. In streaming, the operators kind of lost out. Um, they got no value. They just ended up carrying the traffic, and all the value flow- flows to the over the top. In gaming, we are in a point in time where there, I believe, is a window of opportunity for operators to insert insert themselves into the value chain. So that's what we are trying to do. Of course, it's kind of still early days. We are still, you know, the whole market is trying to understand how does the value flow in gaming and how can operators actually get a piece of the pie. Um, So um, I think it's it's something that that is only going to evolve and emerge uh, in the next few months. telecom news in the industry this week was Telstra's twin announcements regarding their national fibre network. The first was an enormous uh, outfit, an upgrade of their intercap network uh, to support as much as 55 terabits per fibre pair. And the second was an extensive backhaul and ground station network for the global satellite provider, Fiasat. Joining us to talk all about it, Rowan Pearce, the executive editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Rowan. Hello, Graham. Let's start uh, first up with the intercap network. Uh, it's been costed about one point four to one point six billion dollars of above business as usual capex. <laughs> the way Telstra termed it. What, what does this network entail? Yeah, so it's obviously like a like a big 
big start to February, really, for the telco sector. Um, so I guess, actually, well, that figure, 1.4 to 1.6, that's CapEx actually across um, both the intercap upgrade and the Viaset thing. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of fiber kind of involved in both those projects. Um, and together, they're expected to add about $200 million to earnings by FY26, Telstra said. So the fiber upgrade, 20,000 kilometers of fiber, they said. Haven't released the full route list, but they did mention, um, you know, Sydney to Melbourne, Sydney to Brisbane, and Sydney to Perth. But they also did say that there's going to be kind of like a, uh, a regional dimension, which obviously will probably align nicely with the Viasat um, project, which we know we know they said there's going to be hundreds of sites involved in that. Um, so I guess, yeah, Telstra, Telstra made it pretty clear that they've got some, like, you know, anchor customers on the hook, if I'm, I'm kind of mixing my maritime metaphors there or something, I think. But um, <laughs> they have some, some, you know, anchor customers. It sounded like, obviously, hyperscalers, they expect to take a lot of um, this fibre. In the form of dark fibre, too, that's the other thing they said. They noted, actually, Brendan Riley, I think, said yesterday that Telstra hasn't historically been doing much with dark fiber till last year when they launched their dark fiber product but actually a lot of these hyperscalers um are keen on dark fiber so that's going to be like a real kind of key customers but also like andy penn you know spoke about some of the kind of um uh, other bandwidth hungry applications coming down the track like you threw out 6g out there there's some talk of metaverse all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's kind of um, interesting stuff, I guess, as well. Of course, the context is that Telstra's announcement is a real kind of like shot across the bowels of these other fiber projects that we know are happening. Um, obviously, Bevan Slattery's Hyper One, the big Vocus network upgrade in Lego Networks. Um, and I guess, yeah, more, more in the works, as your column hinted at today. Um, Actually, I think um, I think actually one thing that really left out about your column was uh, that thing of like Australia emerging as kind of a regional bandwidth hub. I thought because you do have all these like on one hand all these new submarine cables being laid, and at the same time, all these masses of terrestrial capacity that are going to come online. Yeah, for people who haven't read my column, um, I, I channeled a bit of Donald Rumsfeld, uh, the 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 knowns and the unknowns, and the knowns are things like the fact that. Australia is becoming a regional bandwidth hub. We've got cables to Singapore, Guam, and Hawaii right now, but soon that's going to be Oman and regional Indonesia, Chile, perhaps even Antarctica, where there'll be a lot of scientific data flowing through. I also could have mentioned the SCAR um, radio array in Western Australia that'll be coming online and generating terabits of data. It's all got to go somewhere through something. And, of course, the, the unknowns are things like the metaverse... Um, 6G, we just don't, simply don't know what kind of data demands these may generate. Um, of course, the re- just on the regional bandwidth thing as well, that, that, that's big for a couple of reasons. One is that no one wants to go near Hong Kong anymore. And Singapore's going to become difficult because they've got big limits on new data centers and the types of data centers that hyperscalers like to use. Singapore's going to be prohibiting their construction in future. So a lot of that kind of activity is going to move to Australia potentially northern Australia. So that's what's interesting about it. But the other thing, and you just mentioned that there, Rowan, is that they're building this network for Firesat, the big global um, uh, potential LeoSat operator when they launch their LeoSats. Now, the thing is, that's a great opportunity there for Tilster, isn't it? Because Firesat's far from the only one in the market that's going to need this kind of ground station infrastructure in Australia. 
Yeah, I know. Well, obviously you have like, um, you know, we know we know Starlink is in Australia already, but there's also like, I guess there's uh, uh, Amazon's Kuiper and a few other kind of like um, players that are kind of entering the market soon. So it's the the thing that gets me about the fiber stuff though is as well, it's like, I wonder if there's a race of like, you know, we know there's a lot of cheap money floating around to fund these infrastructure projects now, but I wonder like it's not going to be kind of forever, presumably. Yeah, that's a really good point. There's a lot of, a lot of um, timing about this. You know, the, the time is right to, to get that kind of capital. This really, I'm showing my age a bit here, but this really reminds me of the turn of the century. And we, we, we all remember the dot-com boom, but there was also a related telecom boom at the time and a whole bunch of undersea cables got built. And, you know, some, some of them are names that people remember, such as Global Crossing. And nearly, nearly all of them came a cropper and... Uh, eventually did make money just not for their first set of owners <laughs> they were sold for cents in the dollar and eventual buyers are the ones who ended up um, getting the dividend so i think the big issue with all of these new fiber bills and you, you just mentioned that there's a few of them um is it you need deep pockets to fund those early um losses and of course that makes things look a little better if you're telstra or or even focus and maybe if you're a challenger, like a Hyper One or Inligo, you know, you're going to have more onerous capital demands because you haven't got other revenues, other profits to cross-subsidize from. Yeah, I guess actually um, one thing that did come up too, um, you know, Telstra were very kind of bullish on that they're, they're in a position to deliver this infrastructure and that they feel they have advantages and scale that maybe some of the kind of challenger players won't. Yeah, that's right. They've got internal demands for a start. You know, they've got their own mobile network, their own fixed network. You know, they need to carry that traffic somehow. So yeah, exactly. They've got internal traffic. They've got revenues already. But the other, the other thing as well, and this, this was pointed out to me by someone on the phone the day of the announcement, is that if you're a big giant hyperscaler, um, it's a bit of a no-brainer to partner with a giant incumbent Tilco to, to help you do your business in Australia. And... Um, maybe a tougher internal sell to your board to go over Challenger. Um, and, and of course, that's the benefit incumbents get everywhere. You know, the, the old sort of, you never got fired for buying IBM type adage. So yeah, I think, I think Telstra's definitely in a good space. That all said though, I did get a very interesting bit of feedback from a, a, a comms day subscriber who works in the gaming sector. And he expressed great skepticism to me that this network will be deployed um, in a way that would be accompanied by um, cheaper prices and optimal routing. He sort of felt that these things may be just a little too hard for a big company like Telstra, but that remains to be seen. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess the other thing is like you, you could easily see a situation as well with some of the hype skills where they do want to take fiber from more than one supplier as some sort of form of due diligence. I mean, even with all the kind of redundancy, there's no doubt going to be built into this network. So there's that kind of opportunity there as well, I guess, for um, some of the newer players. Exactly. Well, thanks for that wrap up, Rowan. Very much appreciated. And we'll talk to you next week. It's good to be back. Now, to finish off, we'll hear from Telstra CEO Andy Penn himself talking about the new fiber network this week. He was asked a question as to why Telstra needed to spend all this money now when it's just spent a few billion dollars 
over the past few years, optimizing its core network, taking costs out of the system. What's the point of this new fiber announcement? Uh, six years ago now, we did announce a $3 billion investment. Um, that was basically in digitizing the business and our core network. That was the platform that we needed to be able to launch our T22 strategy. And through that, as you know, we have completely uh, rebuilt and, and built new uh, BSS systems, so CRM billing, provisioning systems. That's what's actually enabled us to support taking, or we will have taken out by the end of this year, 2.7 billion cumulatively in cost. It also enabled us to put in the platform for um, basically moving to much more network functioned, uh, software defined network rather, uh, and a lot of core resiliency in our broader network and um, that we committed to produce or to deliver uh, annualised, I think it was a cumulative, I can't quite remember, um, now, I think it's $540 million for the cumulative annualised. I'm looking at Vicky. Um, anyway, um, we, we committed to provide an economic return for that, which we uh, did, and that was an audited return. So I believe we, we delivered on that well. Since then, we've obviously been very disciplined as well in terms of how we've managed our capex, including bringing our capex down whilst funding uh, the rollout of 5G. We've also said, though, that um, you know, as part of our capital management strategy, we need to look for opportunities to invest and grow in the future. And uh, this is one that we believe is very significant. And as I said earlier. I think we're seeing a structural change in demand. So uh, this is very much taking advantage of that opportunity. So we'll continue to manage our capex in a in a very disciplined way. But if there is opportunity for incremental growth, then I think you'd be disappointed if we didn't take it. In terms of our confidence around the level of build cost, um, firstly, can I sort of say with Hyper One, it, it's not for me to comment on Hyper One. I I know Devin well and our utmost regard for uh, Hyper One, but you know, I can't comment on other people's um, projects and numbers. I, I remember when TPG announced they were going to build um, a new mobile network for $600 million. Candidly, I never believed how they could do that, and history has shown that it couldn't be done and they, they weren't able to do it. So I think, you know, um, in the end, it's, it's a function of what you deliver. Um, and we've got, I think as Brendan said, we've got the experience, we've got a lot of existing infrastructure, so networks of this nature, they require a lot of ground infrastructure, things like repeater sites, amplifiers, um, you know, existing ducting, uh, routing, and so we've got a very, very significant existing set of infrastructure across the country. That's going to give us both the experience speed to build um, and it gives us a lot of synergies in terms of the build as well. So that may explain um, some of the differences that you may see.